making sure that the rights of people with disabilities are front and centre in everything that we do at the Commission is first and foremost. Hello and welcome to Disability Done Different, a podcast by DSE where we have candid conversations about all things disability and NDIS. My name is Evie Norfell. And I'm Roland Northall. And Evie, when you say DSC, is that possibly the same DSC that is running a national conference in Sydney on June 1 and 2 this year? It sure is. The very same DSC that's running the annual NDIS conference at the ICC in Sydney and online. We're going hybrid. Whoa, that's a big deal. It is a pretty big deal. We're pretty excited. We've got an awesome program we've put together, which is going to be released next week. So if you're on our mailing list, keep an eye out for that. If you're not, you can subscribe at teamdsc.com.au slash podcast, because then you'd be subscribing to this and that at the same time. It's really, you know, efficient. So this is a pretty shameless ad that's got nothing to do with our podcast today. Au contraire, Roland, because today on the podcast, we have the NDIS Commissioner, Tracy Mackey, who's also going to be a keynote presenter at the conference. (laughs) Tracy Mackey is the NDIS Quality and Safeguards Commissioner and is just over a year into her three-year term. This is, of course, the top job at the NDIS Commission, which is the government agency that's responsible for investigating complaints relating to NDIS service providers and promoting high-quality services across the sector. So it goes without saying that this is an incredibly important job, and so it's great to have you on the podcast today, Tracy. Thanks for having me on, Evie. And I get to ask the first question, Tracy. We know you've got extensive experience in a bunch of relevant areas to um, being the commission and, and, and being at the commission, but you're also the oldest sister of a person with a disability, which you don't talk about quite as much. How has that shaped who you are and what you're currently doing? I think it's shaped me enormously because we bring to work our whole selves and a big uh-huh. part of me is my family and there are only my brother and I, so um Growing up, we were very close. We're close in age. There's only 16 months between us. Um, my brother is younger, the, the younger of the two. But I've always been the big sister who's been there through all the the struggles and the trials and the and the challenges, but equally through all the joys and all of the experiences that we shared growing up as children. And in fact, I, I do tell the story sometimes that my brother, once he did manage um, to get some supports. We were both in primary school and he used to go to an occupational therapist very regularly amongst others at the Prince of Wales Hospital in Sydney and I used to be so sad that I didn't get to do occupational therapy because they'd put him in one of the net swings and swing him around the room and I thought it looked like great fun and I thought therapy (laughs) was something that I wanted to be included in, not something that, you know, he certainly didn't view it as something that uh, was helping him uh, develop. He certainly viewed it as a fun time and I was missing out on that fun time. So there are lots of experiences that we've shared together and we've remained very close. He's, Although he lives in another state, um, we see him very regularly and he's very close to my daughters and I still help in the fun times and I still help in the times where things are really difficult. And what does he think of his sister being the commissioner? Um, To be honest, he doesn't really, he knows I've got um, a big job and he knows um, that I work in the NDIS, but he's actually 
more interested in, you know, coming down and spending time with myself and, and, and my immediate family and, you know, doing things together rather than understanding what it is that I necessarily do for work. He's a pretty proud little brother, so he tells people a lot what I do, but, uh, you know, he does absolutely leave me to it and uh, he's, he's much more interested in, in what we can do together. Gosh, Tracy, that, that really touches on a number of the issues for the commission. And it's, it's, I think it's so wonderful personally that you do have that experience of having a younger brother as a person with a disability. And engaging people with disability is one of your number one priority. I think it is your number one priority as the commission. You talk about putting people at the centre of everything. How do you do that when um, the engagement needs to be at the things that people want to engage on? And so you're saying your brother's you know, interests are sometimes more about family, sometimes more in other areas than the levels of engagement that the commission might want people with disability to be engaged at. Is that too tricky a question to try to ask? Uh, I can have a go. Please. <laughs> Look, you're right. For me, um, uh, making sure that the rights of people with disabilities are front and centre in everything that we do at the commission is first and foremost. And so I mean that from the point of view of not only the decisions that we take, but also the approach that we bring into the work that we do. Um, and we have very much changed the practice of a range of the functions that we're responsible for um, as we've thought about how we bring people with disabilities very strong and front and centre into that work. Yeah. It is difficult to get, you know, what is a very broad church of people to assume that a small number of people represent that broad church. So that's that's the real challenge for us. So there are now around 580,000 people who are NDIS recipients. And um, as, as part of being a participant in the scheme, we do want people to be able to influence, for example, what good looks like. Now, that's a really big question and it means different yeah. things to different people. But there are approaches that we're bringing to try and bring some of that to the fore. So some people will be familiar that we've just done what's called an own motion inquiry. It's the first own motion inquiry that we've done. And we we and that's really a deep inquiry into supported accommodation. So people who live, for example, in group homes. Now, what we learned from that own motion inquiry was that people who live in a congregate arrangement are less likely to have their choices um, reflected in their supports and services. So we do want to do quite targeted activity with that group of participants, so people who live in supported accommodation. And we've started talking to a range of organisations who um, engage with people who are in those congregate housing arrangements to think about how we can best um, work with people living in supported accommodation. I also take the opportunity everywhere I go, and this is not the answer, but it's, you know, it, it, it's part of how we're trying to do things differently. But everywhere I go, I, when I speak with people with disabilities, and I was at a conference in Geelong yesterday, and I asked people, if you're interested in being involved in any of the work we're doing, whether it's about the supported accommodation work or anything else, we'd love you to let us know, and we'll look at opportunities to get you involved. So we're doing that, um, what I'd call sort of broad engagement approach. Equally, we've got some targeted work happening. So as part of the audit process that providers, registered providers need to go through, um, we've got some work happening to develop 
what we've called consumer technical experts. So really that's a fancy name for people with disabilities who are the customers. Getting them to be involved in quite a formal way as a part of that audit process to help lead the work around the audit when we're when the auditor is engaging with people with disabilities who are receiving those supports and services. So we're doing both the, the, the broad um, engagement pieces as well as some targeted pieces that will really start to influence the way we do our work. I think one of the things that we're, we're talking about in a the theme is in what you're talking about as well. I, I personally have done a lot of work in engagement of people with disabilities over, over three decades. And I think one of the mistakes we see organisations and, and larger bodies make is that they want to engage with people on the questions that are important to the organisation. They don't necessarily start with the questions that are important to the individual and try to build from that. It's a much slower process than going to a group of people and asking them complex systemic questions, which they may not have an interest in or may not have an ability to engage with. So it's a tricky process, isn't it, Tracy? It is a tricky process, um, but it's one we just need to constantly work at. So, yeah. you know, there are there will be things that we will want to ask people particular questions and understand about, but there's also the information that we're gleaning every day through both our complaints process but also our reportable incidents processes. So we do get tens of thousands of reports and every single one of those is an opportunity for our team to talk to a participant or a number of participants about what they're experiencing. Now, yes, we'll talk to them about the particular complaint or issue that we're looking at, but we're also interested in a general conversation with them. And that's where we begin to find out what's really, um, you know, if there's something that's worrying them, if there's something that they find really helpful, if there's something that they really wanted to share and weren't sure who to tell. So each of those is an opportunity and, and all of that work helps determine where we target our resources. So, you know, where do we need to concentrate our efforts on improving quality, for example? Yeah. Mm, I've never thought about it that way, but there would be a wealth of, of um, insight into, into what's happening in the service provision landscape with just the scale of complaints and comments and interactions that you're having with people with disability. I want to come back to your uh, comments about the own motion inquiry into SIL because it's a very important piece of work that is signalling some changes ahead. And and you mentioned just now that what you found in the report is that that safe and secure housing that's essential for a good life, that that experience for people is really often characterised by limited choice and a suboptimal home environment. And what did you find is causing those issues? So as I mentioned, you know, one of the key findings of the review was that If you're an NDIS participant and you live in supported accommodation, your ability to exert choice and control um, is limited, particularly in comparison to your peers who are are NDIS participants who aren't living in supported accommodation. So it tells us quite a lot about the need to really think differently about the way in which um, we work with and support and engage participants living in a supported accommodation about their preferences, about their expectations and about their needs. Um, and, and we need to do that in a way that recognises that for a large number or proportion of people living in supported accommodation, often that's been their home for many, many decades and um, even opening up a conversation to ask what that what 
what might be their preference or what they might like. There's a lot of work that needs to happen before that to build up their confidence and their trust in being able to have that conversation. So that was one of the key findings of the inquiry. And um, there's quite a bit of work that we're we're already embarking on to try and improve in that space, but there's no silver bullet answer in this space and there's not a single answer about what people want in this space either. I'm very conscious that some people have jumped to the conclusion that, well, we shouldn't have group homes. Now, for some people um, who are in group homes, that is absolutely the option that they want. For other people in group homes, it isn't the option that they would prefer. So we need to recognise there's not a simple answer even on that particular question about, you know, what we should offer um, as supports and services. Rather, we need to think about how we work with those individuals to determine what's going to suit them best. Um, and that's going to take much more time and it's, it's, a, it's a much harder road for us to travel down. There's, there's not a singular response. There's many responses that sit in that space. Um, in the meantime, you know, one of the other um, major findings is that if you live in supported accommodation, you are more likely as an NDIS participant to be subject to a, a, an incident, and that might be an incident related to injury or harm or abuse or neglect, than you are if you're an NDIS participant who's not in supported accommodation. So we've already embarked on a, a number of activities to ensure that providers are who are delivering what many people call SIL, so supported independent living. So uh, to make sure those providers of SIL are delivering at the level at which they should and in a quality way that ensures the participants that are living in those, um, in those homes and facilities are safe and well supported. I'm old enough to have been around when deinstitutionalisation happened and the group homes were invented and they were meant to be a great way of bringing people out into the community. And one of the things we did, I've managed group homes and they're very, very scary um, environments to manage because, and I know you know this, Tracy, but I just want to spend a moment talking about how difficult it is. They're 24-7 environments. It's very, very difficult to attract staff to work and to work overnight. People, the staff are working in um, isolation a lot of the time, which means the opportunities for abuse and neglect are greatly amplified. The, the management and administration of the group of the group home is is given a few hours a week to a person with who's probably come off the floor not that long ago to manage the group home. And as far as I can see, 24-7 group home environment with the sorts of people that need 24-7 support is about the riskiest job anywhere you, you, could, you could have. We've got this very, very high-risk environment, seriously understaffed most of the time. I think seriously underfunded, even though they cost a truckload to operate in each environment. It's just a hell of environment, which in the COVID era, it must be just impossible to staff. So... I don't know if that's a question or, um, or more of a statement, but do you, do you want to respond, Tracy? I think I'll probably let you have that one as a statement. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. Uh, you've touched on a range of issues and, and um, we certainly explored a number of those. The inquiry, however, wasn't about funding. In terms of workforce, we did look at the arrangements of the workforce in um, a range of properties and services that uh, were across the seven service providers but it wasn't to determine whether or not, for example, you know, the major 
um, issue was the attraction and retention of staff. And in fact, we, we know from quite a few of the providers that you know, a range of things they're doing in that space um, to try and improve. Tracy, were there any surprises for you in this review? I don't know about surprises, um, Evie, but I would say it was really helpful to have confirmed a number of assumptions that people make mm-hmm. um, and to be able to, if you like, peel those away a little bit to really understand them. So, for example, we we looked at all of the reportable incidents across seven service providers who are all quite large service providers in the supported accommodation area. And in looking at reportable incidents, that the most dominant or, or highest proportion of reportable incidents was around serious injury to a person with a disability. But what's interesting about that is most people jump to, well, that's the worker, you know, impacting the person. But in fact, what we found was that um, most of those incidents involved an altercation with another person with a disability. So one of the the co-residents in that home was usually the one who was inflicting the injury upon another person. The, The second was unexplained bruising or cuts or abrasion where it was unclear where that occurred, either inside or outside the home. So yet, and I'm not at all diminishing the fact that we also found that there were issues in terms of workers, uh, but often what we found was the most dominant type of abuse, for example, of a person with a disability was a verbal abuse by a worker. Hmm. So um, we've heard lots of examples in the media where people assume certain things about what's happening and what these incidents relate to, but it's it's really important that we understand what's driving some of these numbers so we can think about what are the ways in which we need to improve the arrangements so that people are safe. Mm. And and with that in mind, you have put together an action plan post this motion, uh, the own motion inquiry. Can you tell us a bit about what that involves specifically for the cell providers? Sure. So we have, we did release an action plan at the same time as releasing the inquiry report and um, that was very deliberate. We wanted to make sure that we sent a very strong signal that we wouldn't just be producing the report and letting it sit on a shelf. We actually wanted to make sure that we as an organisation were learning from it um, and making sure that we were taking the right action. So we are making changes to the way in which we regulate and monitor Um, the delivery of supported accommodation and that will include at a high level the development of new practice standards for supported accommodation we're not we're not already off drafting those practice standards in fact the first thing we want to do is make sure that people with disabilities living in supported accommodation environments have the opportunity to let us know what would make a difference in terms of the practice that they're experiencing so that they can very much inform those practice standards We've also um, developed uh, and we're targeting programs of communication and engagement um, to amplify the voice of people with disabilities. And um, thirdly, we're looking at what we do in terms of the oversight of supported independent living services and supported disability accommodation. And that includes both registered and unregistered providers, particularly in the SIL environment where you don't necessarily have to be registered. So despite the fact that some providers are not registered, everyone's got to meet the code of conduct and we have started some of those targeted compliance activities with those service providers so we can look very carefully at their practice 
and whether or not they are putting the participants um, front and centre in what they're doing um, and delivering a quality service that ensures that their rights um, are very much respected and it is a good example of service delivery. Uh, Tracy, I want to ask a, a question about um, systemic reviews versus individual responses. And we're going to ask you questions about the NDIS review because that's such a major systems review about the Royal Commission, which is such a major systems review. So you're certainly operating in a, a very um, review-y, um, <laughs> systemic um, type, type world at the moment. But in your role and at the Commission, you do you get do you make the choices or are there choices to be made between individual responses and systemic responses and where resources are deployed? Does that make sense? You, I mean, the commission could just be working with individuals the whole time and not get the opportunity to do the reviews of the issues. How, how do you balance the individual and the systemic? Um, so that is something that we do each and every day. So we have finite resources. So we can't be everywhere to everyone all of the time. So we do make decisions about where we look at things uh, on a more systemic or a broader basis. And we certainly triage and prioritise all of those individual incidents and complaints so we can get to those that are significant and do have the most impact as quickly as possible. In terms of um, th those broader reviews, we do have the own motion inquiry power, which we as we've just been talking about, we've handed down our first inquiry report. And that was a very broad ranging and deep um, look at supported accommodation, looking at more than 7,000 complaints and incidents. And so that was the basis upon which um, we commenced that, that inquiry. And in undertaking the inquiry, we've uh, drawn in quite a bit of evidence. We've commissioned work, for example, work from Professor Christine Bigby around best practice in supported accommodation. And um, we've also talked to many providers and lots more participants um, as a part of that inquiry. So it's a really important tool for us as a regulator to be able to do that deeper look um, at particular issues and understand what's driving those issues and how we can best be proactive to ensure that safeguarding arrangements are in place and that we are attempting to improve quality across the market. We have announced a second iMotion inquiry. We did that earlier this month and that's looking at platform providers. Um, so those wondering what platform providers are, essentially it's the emergence of those providers that use online, online arrangements to match uh, workers um, or providers with participants. And so we're just in the very early stages of that. We would love to hear from anyone who is interested in commenting about their experience, either as a worker or as a participant, um, using platform providers. And we'll be running sessions through to the end of April. Um, so do get in touch if you're interested in contributing to that one. Along the way, we've also done other things that aren't own motion inquiries. So, um, for example, we did a scoping study, which we had an eminent academic undertake for us around looking at the causes of deaths. Now, that was done uh, more than 12 months ago, and we're just in the process of doing another a look at that and these types of inquiries or these types of scoping reviews they all allow us to 
to really make sure that we're our approach and our position around how we're regulating and the kind of actions we're taking and the kind of education um, that we're pushing out into the sector are appropriate and are responding to the trends that we're seeing. Mm. I, I want to ask you what you're seeing in the future from that NDIS review. And of course, we're referring to NDIS 2.0 and New Hope, as it's been very dramatically titled, which is the review that's been kicked off by the new NDIS minister, Bill Shorten. Not that not that new now, but it's the 10 year review of the NDIS. It's to taking a look at everything that's happening in NDIS. So it's uh, really one of the biggest reviews or yeah, the biggest review we've seen. What are you expecting that that review may say about the quality and safeguarding framework? So the review of the quality and safeguarding framework is part of that independent review. And I don't want to preempt the findings or the recommendations of the independent review. So I'm not going to comment about where they might land. Mm -hmm. What I would say is that the review is really timely because the framework was developed back in 2016 and it really does underpin the quality and safety regulatory arrangements for us at the Commission. Um, it, it really is, if you like, an initial strategy and architecture. And so given it was developed back in 2016, before there'd been the stage transition to the national regulatory arrangements, before we knew about any of the issues that would come through the Commission's door, you know, that framework was developed. So it's really timely to think about now that we have got national transition to the new regulatory environment, now that we've seen a significant growth in the number of participants, now that we've seen quite a bit of reform around the way in which the scheme operates, um, and now that we have the benefit of experience in the Commission in terms of you know, what are the, the complaints, what are the incidents, what kind of actions have we been taking, can we take, where are the limitations, where do we need to do more, it's really timely that this work is undertaken. So we're working really cooperatively with the, the panel and the NDIS review secretariat team um, to try and make sure that we feed in as much information as possible. And I expect that there will be explicit findings around the framework as a part of that review work and, and really look forward to seeing those being shared so that we can um, continue to work with participants and make sure that their rights to a safe and quality supports are upheld and that we can do that in the best possible way. Tracy, you've, you've spoken about wanting to be a modern regulator and, and I wonder what that means in the current current world as carrot versus stick. There's a lot of emphasis on risk and c compliance. How much is the modern regulator focused on a proactive approach to um, support the sector in a proactive way to do things differently? So uh, we do talk about wanting to be a modern regulator. Um, I suppose the terms that we use are to be a contemporary purpose-led regulator, and that's really deliberate. It's deliberate because regulation is relatively new for the disability sector. Um, there were some pockets of partial regulation under the previous funding arrangements, but this is really the first time we've seen the whole sector have a regulatory arrangement. It is important that we continue to mature as a regulator, but also that we help the sector mature as a regulated community. And so we have done quite a bit of work over the last six to nine months about our regulatory approach 
and we've just released our regulatory strategy. Sorry, this is my little infomercial about it. <laughs> but it's a, a really, it's meant to be a helpful tool. So what it does is outline um, very much our approach and you'll see very clearly in it that we put the rights of people with disability at the centre of everything we do. But it also talks about um, how we need to ensure that we're fair, that we're proportionate, that we're open, that we're transparent and we're outcomes focused because at the end of the day we've got to deliver the best possible safeguards and ensure that quality um, of services is delivered to participants. So we outline in the, the regulatory strategy all of the levers that we have as a regulator. Now, most people just think about the regulator holding the big stick, um, but there's much more to it than that. There are times when we do need to take compliance action, so we do need to put in place banning orders, to suspend registrations, um, to take civil prosecutions. But there are also levers and times where we need to do education, we need to influence the way people operate, we need to very much engage in a different way. So all of those regulatory tools are very much outlined in that strategy. And, and I think what brings it home for people is if I talk about the numbers. So in the last financial year, we took around 680 actions and they ranged from some of those more compliance-focused ones around um, banning orders and infringement notices also to the education ones, you know, where we're working with people to try and improve the capability and the understanding of what needs to happen. This, um, the first six months of this financial year, we've already taken nearly five and a half thousand actions and the vast majority of those have been in the education space. So working with providers and workers to really make a difference. And it's not just those actions that we're taking, it's also the investment that we're making in all of the tools and resources um, that we have available for the sector. So, for example, if people haven't already, um, please go and have a look at the Workforce Capability Framework. The Capability Framework is amazing. It was developed by participants and workers and providers um, and lots of experts lent their hand and it provides really practical easy to reference um, tools and resources around all of the things you might imagine. So, for example, if you're trying to um, recruit a disability support worker, there's information about well, what are the attributes that you should look for or what are the position descriptions, what would that include? What might a, a good recruitment process look like? And once they're on board, what does supervision look like around someone? So there are really practical sets of tools that are sitting there that are all downloadable with lots of kind of templates and tips and tricks along the way um, for people to use. So I'd really encourage people, if you take nothing else away from this podcast, next time you stop for a cup of tea, log on, have a look at the capability framework and see how it can help you in the work that you do. We agree completely, Tracy, and that you know the code of conduct, the capability framework, are some really good um, starting points for a lot of action. I just want to ask you about. You, you said you've dramatically increased the number of education actions you, you're taking. Could you tell us a little bit about what that might look like? Just a few examples. I, I don't expect you to cover the breadth of what you do. So education can include a range of things. So it can be um, quite a formal action that we take. So we. 
we might uh, particularly want to confirm that you've undertaken certain training with your staff um, mm -hmm. about a particular issue. It might be that we want a particular type of um, service provider who delivers certain supports to be aware that there's trends in terms of particular issues around, for example, mealtime management, where we've got lots of resources and a masterclass and so forth. It might be about that this, we've observed something's missing um, in terms of the policies and procedures that are in place. So we want to alert people to that and get them to focus on, okay, where's that gap? What do we need to do? And make sure people are alert to it. And, you know, I mean, there is a plethora of examples here. Um, yeah, yeah. You know, we took more than 4,000 education actions and, and they were, you know, in that compliance space. So they're usually indiv individual actions. Sometimes they can be at a group of providers, but you know, they're the kind of actions that we're taking every day because it is in everyone's interest for people to improve the quality of the supports and the arrangements around those supports. So, so Tracy, I just want to finish the podcast where we began which is, I just want to um, say thank you. It's great to have someone bring a level of humanity to um, to the commission and to the, the bigger organisations in the sector, the ones that are running it. And your lived experience and your focus on participants first um, feels very genuine. So just it's a personal um, thank you. Thank you for taking up the position and um, you're one year into three years and we wish you all the very best with the next couple. Thanks very much. And um, I hope to hear from many of your listeners um, we'd, we'd love to hear as much as possible from participants, from workers, from providers about how we can help. And if they've got something to share with us, we'd really encourage them to get into contact. And we'll make sure we include that information in the show notes as well. Thanks again, Tracy. No worries. Thank you. See ya. Thank you. You've been listening to Disability Done Different Candid Conversations, a podcast by DSC. The people running the National Conference. It's produced by, more specifically, Maya Thomas. Uh, if you want to subscribe, we love that for you. We love it for us. You can go ahead and do it at teamdsc.com.au slash podcast. You can leave us five-star reviews. I mean, I say this every episode and none of you ever do, but it's fine. I'll keep encouraging you. But otherwise, look, we'll see you in another episode and we, we're happy to have had you listening this far. That's really quite a privilege. Thank you.